the Bible. You know, if, if the New York Times bestsellers list kept the Bible on the top 10 list, it would make the top 10 every single week. Many of us probably own multiple Bibles and multiple translations, but at the end of the day, do we actually know what the Bible is? Do you know what the Bible is? We're going to tackle that question today in the How to Read the Bible podcast. Welcome to the How to Read the Bible podcast, a podcast designed to help you grow in your knowledge and desire for reading the Bible. Welcome to episode three of the How to Read the Bible podcast. In our last couple episodes, we were tackling the question of why do I read my Bible? In the first episode, we looked at all the benefits we can receive from reading the Bible. We talked about how in reading scripture, we get to know God's heart. We get to gain God's perspective. And in the last episode, episode two, we looked at the reality that the Bible is true. We read the Bible because the Bible is true. So now in episode three, I want to look at this question of what is the Bible? So we know that we need to read the Bible. We have some reasons of why we should read. But what is it that we're actually reading? You know, something that a lot of people might think with the Bible is that it's just one big book. It's the religious book of, of Christians, and, and that's true to a certain extent. But the thing we need to recognize with the Bible is that as much as it is one book, it's really a collection of many books. You know, the Bible has 66 parts to it between the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we get 39 books. In the New Testament, we get 27 books. Uh, and this reality is represented in the very name of the Bible. The name Bible in the Latin means books, plural. It is a collection of books. Uh, and so it's important for us to know how these books were brought together, especially in the context of our last episode when we talked about the Bible being true. So if we believe the Bible is true, if we believe that the Bible is authoritative, which is to say that it actually has something to say to us about how we live our lives, then it matters about the process in which the books that we call the Bible and the books that we look to, author look to as authoritative, it's important for us to know how they actually came to be a part of this collection. You know what, I am no expert in this whole area of study of how the Bible came together, so I am here with my good friend Zachary Ward, who is currently a grad student at Regent College, and he's going to be answering some questions for us on this whole topic. So how's it going, Zach? It's going great, Adam. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's good to have you on, on this podcast series. Um, so the thing I do know about the Bible coming together is that that process was called the canonization of Scripture, and that sometimes the Bible is referred to as the canon. So could we maybe start there and start by unpacking this idea of canon as it pertains to um, bringing together the different books of the Bible? So, so what is canon? Yeah, that's a great question, Adam. Um, the word canon itself actually comes from the Greek language, and its literal meaning is just the word rod. A canon was a type of, uh, a type of tool that was used to keep other things straight or to measure the straightness of, of an object. Um, it would be similar to a ruler used by a child in school to draw straight lines or a level or plumb line used by a construction worker to make sure that their building is being built properly and straight. It's from this literal understanding of, of, of a cannon as being a ruler or a level that we can understand what we mean when we talk about the scriptures as being canonical. A canon, or the canon, provides a standard to act as a reference to determine the accuracy of anything we measure it against. It's clear from, the, from this that the New Testament is meant to be a rule by which we can measure our own theological beliefs 
and the theological beliefs of others. All Christian belief must be conformed to scriptures, and that's the purpose of the canon. Okay, so that's really neat. So basically, what you're getting at is that when we talk about canon, it's this, it's saying that it's the canon of scriptures to say that the scriptures as a whole are the authority or the standard by which we we live and we understand our theology. Exactly. If there's anything in your life that you hear in a Christian book or a sermon, you need to be able to test that to scripture to understand whether what's being said is true. And that goes back to what we talked about in our last episode, that we can read the Bible because the Bible's true. And so I think this enforces the importance of this next question. But because so as we gather these books together and come to call them scripture or call come to call them canon, which I guess is a, a really weighty thing to call a book, um, as we do that, what was that process like? Could you maybe unpack that a bit? Uh, we can start by looking at the Old Testament. So what with the Old, when we consider the Old Testament in terms of this idea of it being um, part of canon or it being a true document, an authoritative document, um, how did that come to be recognized? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the Old Testament was something that it took a long time to come together. But what we do know is that by the time of Jesus and the apostles, the old, the, what we look at as the Old Testament ha- was seen as being authoritative, as being canon. In Scripture, we see Christ himself referring to a multiple passages of the Old Testament and treating it as authoritative. And when you get to the, when you get to the letters of Paul and Peter and John, we see, again, the Old Testament being treated as Scripture, not as being important historical texts, but as being authoritative, inspired messages from God in their life. So we see Jesus, Peter, Paul, all of them looking at the Old Testament as canon, in a sense. Absolutely, right? yeah. yes. Okay, and so so when we talk about the Scriptures being, the Old Testament being authoritative in canon, there's a comfort that I think we have in the fact that that's how Jesus and Paul and Peter looked at the Old Testament. Um, but then I guess the New Testament is a lot different, isn't it? Because in the New Testament, we have these men referring to the Scriptures, which which would have been the Old Testament, like when in 2 Timothy 3.16, when we talked about that in episode one, Paul references the scriptures. He's probably not referencing the New Testament. Um, he's referencing the Old Testament. So how is it that we've come to have these 27 New Testament documents um, as part of our Bibles? And also not only just part of the Bibles, but considered to be canon. Yeah, so the New Testament itself was written over the course of about 30 or 40 years during the second half of the first century. It was written by the apostles or by um, disciples of those apostles. The early church um, treated the writings of the apostles and, and their disciples as scripture almost immediately. There was some disagreement as to, uh, uh, for certain books, as to what was scripture or not. And there were certain books that were in that were later see, uh, understood to not be authoritative, but we, from the very beginning, see a core of scripture coming together. So it's almost like the early church was recognizing that these books were canon as they were being produced, just because they, they were written by people who were in the company of Jesus. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's really neat. And so the, these 27 books that we have, um, how did we end up with that specific list in those specific 27 books? Yeah, that's an interesting question and a very interesting story. 
it actually all began with heresy. Oh, with heresy? Yeah. Um, so the, one of the first lists we actually have that says which books are canon and which books aren't is written by a wealthy Roman uh, by the name of Marcion. Now, Marcion, um, he had a hard time reconciling the loving God of the New Testament with the harsh God of the Old Testament, as he saw it. So he actually would argue that the, he argued that the entire Old Testament itself was not uh, scripture. And he looked at only a very small portion of the New Testament, specifically the Gospel of Luke and Paul's writings as being canonical. In fact, he actually edited them quite a bit to meet his understanding of who Christ was, because he did not believe that Christ himself was fully human at all. He believed he was only God. Um, and so he removed the nativity story and also the resurrection from his version of Luke. Marcion would aggressively evangelize this view of God, and we would actually start seeing some Marcionite churches uh, cropping up throughout the Roman Empire. So... So these lists, then, he's going around saying that this is canon, or this is scripture, this is the rule by which we should live our lives, right? Like, it's, that's what he's proclaiming? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's a big problem, because um, it's obviously so wrong. So what did the early church do about this? Yeah, so at this point, we start seeing a response to heresy um, of this sort, with um, canon lists written uh, by the church itself they uh, are coming back and saying, no, these are the books that we truly recognize to be life-giving. And these are the books that we truly understand have the spirit of God within them. So we have the, the early churches responding or reacting to this guy Marcion by creating their own list, but the list that they're compiling, what's the criteria or the basis by which that they're saying that one book is considered scripture canon and another is not? Yeah, by looking at the um, incidental remarks in these canon lists, uh, we can understand what it is that they were looking for to help understand which books were actually authoritative. Um, and we can look at three specific ones. Catholicity, orthodoxy, and apostolicity. So the first one, Catholicity, comes from a, the proper understanding of the word Catholic, which means universal. So the document itself had to be applicable to the whole church throughout all time. So this would cut out uh, books that were very local to, to a very local time period or uh, audience. The second criteria, orthodoxy, just means that it is it agrees with the rule of faith. It can't the Bible can't di uh, disagree with itself. So if we're looking at a book and saying, well, is this book authoritative, and it disagrees with something we already have in Scripture, then it, we can't accept that as being scriptural. And the third criteria is apostolicity. And this is something I mentioned earlier. The documents themselves had to have been written by an apostle or by one of those uh, people under that apostle's authority, one of their disciples. I'd like to reemphasize that these are criteria that weren't explicitly understood, but that we see in incidental remarks or implicitly in these lists of canon. Ultimately, the biggest criteria for canon is that these books are life-giving. When we refer to the, the scriptures as the living word of God, we are saying that these books themselves do something which other books do not do. Hmm. That's really cool. Um, and so with these lists, how many, do you know roughly how many lists would have been floating around? There were several. Um, there was probably four or five that were specific, of, of specific importance. 
Um, I mentioned a couple of them. The first one would be what's called the Muratorian Canon, which is named after the person who discovered it. Um, and it, that canon is important because it's probably the earliest list of an Orthodox canon list we have. And that one's dated to about the middle of the second century. So that would be just shortly after uh, Marcion and his, issue, and, he, and, he, and his issues come along. Another one to look at would be a letter written by um, a Alexandrian bishop by the name of Athanasius. Uh, this would be in the, in the fourth century. And he's probably the first person, or he's the first person we have who wrote a canon list that is identical to what we understand today as being scripture. And then finally, um, we could look at Augustine and the North African synods of 393, 397, and 419 AD. These are probably the closest thing we have to a authoritative closing of canon in that um, this, these are church councils coming together to decide as the church that these are the ones that we understand to be the canon of scripture. The one thing I'd like to add to that, though, is that these North African synods weren't actually authoritative to the whole church. This is just a uh, group of congregations coming together under their bishop, uh, Augustine, and agreeing on what they understand to be the authoritative books of scripture and agreeing that they will not treat any other books like that. Okay. Wow. So, so this is like late fourth century. Yes, absolutely. Wow. So the early church is like well underway. Uh, we're a couple centuries away from Christ and these lists are kind of coming to a place where people are saying, okay, this, this is what we consider scripture. This is what we don't. So it was quite the process. Absolutely. It was a very long and messy process that, co- that covers the entirety of the Roman Empire. And there wasn't much discussion between these different sections, um, which I actually would argue is a benefit to us understanding these to be truly the books of scripture hmm. because they are all agreeing on the same ones. Okay, that's remarkable. Yeah. And so let's unpack that a bit. So this idea, the criteria that you're looking at, and something we've talked uh, talked about outside of this episode, um, just you and I personally together, is this idea that the canon wasn't, it wasn't so much that the church decided what was canon, but more that the canon, um, it was more that they discovered what already was canon. Could you unpack that a bit? Yeah. Um, I think one of the big questions that... Um, is still being discussed in academic circles about canon is whether it is an authoritative list of books or at a list of authoritative books. Hmm. So the question is really, where does the authority lie? Does yeah. authority lie in the church people who decide this is what canon is? Or does the authority lie in the scriptures themselves? Hmm. And I would argue very strongly um, that the authority lies in the scriptures themselves. Um, because again, this wasn't a thing where there was a massive church council with every Christian congregation being uh, represented and agreeing together, this is what we've decided is scripture. This is something that's happening very organically, very slowly, um, and yet there is consensus. Hmm. That's really neat. It's almost like we see the hand of God at work in this whole process too, guiding and and bringing these books together, uh, which is kind of a a cool thing to think about. Absolutely. As as a historian by training, I I have a hard time pointing out the hand of God. (laughs) Yeah. But I would agree that in this situation, it seems very clear. Wow. And so as, yeah, as history unfolded, we see these books not so much being decided to be canon, but we see these books being recognized as canon, being scripture. And again, as we've been talking about in this pa- in this podcast series, 
we come to understand and see how the scripture is truth and it is authoritative. Um, so another question on canon, if again, we're at the end of the fourth century, we have this later list of, of books um, that we're considering scripture. Would we say then that this list is closed? Yeah, that's actually a really messy uh, question to answer. Um, the, the short answer is no, the canon is not closed, but it also needs to be understood that um, while there have been things that have been suggested that should be added to canon, or if we if we were to discover a manuscript written by Paul, maybe should be added to canon, um, the general consensus is that while it's not closed, there's nothing else that can be added to it. Hmm. Um, to suggest that we could close the canon also kind of suggests, again, the authoritative list of books understanding of canon that is something that we have control over yeah. when we really don't and canon is just something that we recognize the mm. books that we have in the new testament testament were canon were these authoritative rulers that we understand for theology when the ink dried on the pages yeah so when so let's say we discovered third corinthians and we look at this document and we see that it lines up to being a it fits the criteria of catholicity it fits the criteria of orthodoxy and it fits the criteria of apostolicity um, what would we do with that document would we reprint our bibles with third corinthians in it um i would argue that no we wouldn't and i don't think there is any um any really good academic out there who would say that it should be added in um the, there are books out there that, again, almost were, were almost or were at times considered scripture by certain congregations uh, in the early church. And these books uh, largely fit um, these criteria for canon that we, that we recognize, but ultimately weren't added in. And books like that, if we were to discover a new writing by Paul and we could confirm that it was in fact Pauline, um, it would be a book that would be important for Christians to read, um, but not any more important than uh, something written by a trusted biblical scholar or pastor or something like that. Hmm. We could we and I would I would encourage reading those things. And there are lots of books in the early church that again had temporary um, uh, status as being canon uh, because we misunderstood them as canon that are pr- great for that and yeah. should be read by the yeah. church. What's an example of that? What would be your favorite one? Uh, my favorite one's probably the Didache, which is a writing of uh, early church practices and talks about this is, it was an understanding of this is how we ought to do church. And it has a beautiful uh, discussion on the way of life and the way of death. And it has a, uh, a, a lot of really great benefit to it, to a Christian's growth, but it cannot be seen as, uh, as scripture. And I would say that one because... It's, it's too local. It, what, mm. what the thing it, it talks about, like, this is how we have to baptize people and uh, like in, in running water and, all, and things yeah, like yeah. that. And, and that's not something that's necessarily needed for the church, mm. uh, the church in, in, its, in, in its entirety. But it's still something which is, I think, beneficial for a Christian to read, just like, yeah. it's just like a good Christian book would be. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Well, this is, this is really good stuff, Zach. Um, my last question, this is almost more out of curiosity, is the whole thing about verses and chapters. You know, we look at, um, we look at the Bible, we understand that they were first, uh, first century, the New Testament anyway, first century writings. Um, but when Paul was writing or, or uh, Luke was writing, he's not writing chapter one, verse one, is he? 
No, absolutely not. Um, the original manuscript of any book of scripture did not have chapters and verses. But uh, from really early on, before Christianity even, we see uh, Jewish scholars uh, dividing up books of the Bible into into different chunks, like what we would call chapters or verses, yeah. right? Um, either for uh, the ability to just reference easier or uh, to break up the... There, there was a breaking up of the Torah so that it could be read in synagogue over the course of a three-year period, hmm. have the entire thing read. Yeah. Um, the chapters and verses that we have uh, in our Bibles today... Um, the chapters were added in the 13th century by a Catholic archbishop named Stephen Langton, and the verses were written in uh, a 1551 edition of the Greek New Testament by a French printer named Robert Estienne. Uh, these ones, they, again, they're just added in largely for our referencing ability yeah. of them. Yeah. And I think it's an important thing to recognize that these aren't author. These ones, are, these aren't authoritative. Yeah. Uh, in fact, sometimes they're really. Bad. Yeah, totally. uh, they'll they'll take a, a story in scripture and they will put a chapter break right in the middle of it. And if you're just reading chapter to chapter, sometimes you miss these things. Yeah, and that's why you, when you see a pastor um, preaching through a, a book of the Bible, oftentimes you won't see him doing chapter by chapter. Won't go Mark one, Mark two, Mark three. He will break up the book into narrative chunks, which yeah. sometimes will only be half a chapter and sometimes will be a portion of two chapters that are next to each other. Yeah. Um, and this is just because um, as our uh, study of scripture has continued over the course of uh, the last centuries, we have a better understanding of, of the narrative structure of scripture. Hmm. That's really cool. Hey, well, thanks so much, Zach. We're just out of time here uh, for this podcast episode, but thanks for being my guest and Absolutely. for answering these questions around canon. And I hope uh, for our listeners that you feel like you have a wider, better understanding of what is the Bible, uh, this book you have in front of you. Um, what What is it that makes the Bible scripture? What is it that makes it authoritative? And I think Zach answered those questions quite well. Well, before we uh, close up here, Zach, is there any resources that you'd recommend to our listeners to maybe check out on this topic? Absolutely. Um, the thing that first got me into uh, being really interested in this topic itself when I was a young Christian was Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Hmm. Uh, in it, he interviews uh, Bruce Metzger on this topic. Bruce Metzger is possibly one of the leading scholars uh, in uh, in this in the understanding of can in the canon of Scripture. Uh, so, Case for Christ would be a great great starter. And if someone wanted to do a bit of deeper reading, uh, I would suggest uh, the more recent writings of Michael Kruger, especially his book, The Question of Canon. Uh, in that book, he talks a lot about um, what we've talked about as the canon as being recognized rather than being discerned. Hmm. Great. Well, thanks so much, Zach. Thanks for your time today. And thank you to those who are listening for, for listening to this podcast episode. Next week, we'll be talking about the whole topic of Bible translation and what translations we should be using in our Bible study. And thank you again to Hopeful Son Worship Collective for providing us the music for this podcast series. And we hope that you'll tune in next time. I will your freedom as I worship you. I will walk in your power. I'll walk in your truth. I will